0: I'll try not to wipe out all my stuff this morning. Not that I would name any names, but hopefully this won't happen to me. (laughs) Uh, Well, um, as is our um, bi-weekly, no, is that right? Every other week, is that bi-weekly? Uh, thing that we do. Um, This morning I wanted to address the kids first as kind of my introduction. Kids. Kids as my kids back there too. Okay, so this morning we're going to be talking about how angels and Jesus compare to each other and how much better Jesus is, which may seem kind of a little odd, but as I'm going to explain Jesus is just so much more powerful and so much better than angels. But I thought, you know, maybe we don't talk about angels very much. So I wanted you guys to think about, and you girls too, because there are female superheroes who your favorite, like, superheroes are, you know. I know for my boys, oh my goodness, they could list all kinds of them. Bet you guys could too, of course. But, um, the superheroes, you know, have become very popular in the last, I don't know. A couple years, few years, whatever. I grew up on comic books. That's what they actually used to be in, it's comic <laughs> books. Now, I don't think my kids own a comic book, but they know all about the superheroes cuz of all the movies and the various things. Angels are kind of like superheroes, right? They're really powerful. They can do all kinds of cool stuff in the Bible. They're doing all kinds of things, you know. They'll they can appear, disappear, they can fly. They've got Flaming Swords of Fire, right? I mean, all kinds of cool stuff, just like the superheroes. And I was thinking about, you know, how funny it is that in, uh, DC and Marvel, you know, they've got, um, they're oftentimes throwing around the term gods, you know, whether it's Thor and his bunch or, uh, in the DC world, you know, Wonder Woman is tied up in all the Greek gods and all this stuff. My boys and I are reading, uh, sort of a short, simpler version of the Iliad right now. So we're learning all about Troy and Greece fighting each other and all the gods doing all this goofy stuff, messing around with the battle. And I was thinking, you know, even in the Bible and in various places in history, you know, angels have been referred to or we throw around the term gods occasionally, things like that. But today we're going to see that Jesus is so much better. Like, way beyond better and more powerful than any of the angels. And so I want you to think about all the things that the superheroes can do and how powerful they are, even the the biggest, most powerful ones. And Jesus could just snap his fingers and they'd be gone. He could defeat them without even saying a word. It would make probably for a very boring movie because there would be no fight. They'd be done. So that's what we need to remember about angels as we look at this passage. So hopefully that'll help you guys think about that as we read some of these hard verses. So anyway, for the adults, <laughs> Jesus is better than the angels. And this is um, really at first when I, when I received word that I would be preaching this sermon this morning, I was like, oh man, <laughs> this is a fun one. This morning, we're going to go through seven Old Testament passages in a row, and that's it. That's the sermon. And I was like, this is going to be really interesting (laughs) to try to figure out what the author of Hebrews is saying. But I believe he's basically saying this, Jesus is better than the angels because he is God's son, the Messiah. And that's super simple, but I thought, what does that mean? You know, he can do everything they can do better and his role is infinitely more important. So, as Sean said last week, the author of Hebrews uses the Old Testament a lot. One guy I read said that basically Hebrews could be considered a sermon on the Old Testament. I mean, he is... The way we try to uh, exposit the Bible and explain what it means, the author of Hebrews is basically doing that for these Jewish Christians and explaining what the Old Testament means. So... Let's go back to actually. let's just go back to verse 1. I'm going to read the whole passage through to verse 14. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature." when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. <clears throat> they will wear, they will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your, ear, your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray real quick. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you're trying to teach us right here in this passage, in this book, in this Bible. God, I thank you for all of the infinitely beautiful little treasures of who Jesus is. And God, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of just one, just small, one small little piece of that beauty this morning. So, Lord, if we don't see it, we won't be changed. So I ask you, show us the glory of Jesus. Just in the smallest way, if possible, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, as I said, the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make this morning is why Jesus is better than angels. Now, this may seem really random and strange, because it did to me at first, until I got got to thinking about it, and thankfully also read some commentaries. But at first, it seems like, where are, where is this topic of angels coming from, right? Does it not seem random? In verse 4, you know, he's giving this beautiful, broad, sweeping beginning of explaining what Hebrews is going to be all about. And then in verse 4, he's like, and he's much he's superior to angels also. It just seemed almost like an afterthought. Well, when you get to thinking about it, what do angels do in the Old Testament? What do they do more than anything else? And again, our whole focus here is the Old Testament this morning. And so I started thinking about like what they what they did and how it was taught and things like that. Well, if you'll notice in verse 1, the first thing he mentions is that long ago in the old, older days, in the Old Testament, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Well, the prophets were one way that God spoke. But if you'll remember, God also spoke often through angels he would bring a word of something that was about to happen or a command or, or something through angels. You know, you could think about Abraham got visited. Um, of course, Lot, the famous horrible story of, of Lot and how the angels were there. They protected him, saved his family. Um, you know, there's lots of times an angel shows up to Joshua and, you know, diff- different things that happen where angels bring the word of the Lord. Not only that, something I found very interesting, but it is actually taught that the law was mediated to Moses through angels. So in I'm not going to do too much uh, reading of other passages here, but I did want to read these. Stephen said it in Acts 738. He says, "This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel." who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. He's talking about Moses. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. So he's talking about Moses being there with an angel. And then, I don't think I ever picked up on this before, but in Galatians, Paul says the same thing. Galatians 3, 19, he says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And here's the key. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. I don't think I'd ever picked up on that, because when you read the Old Testament account, it doesn't really mention, I don't think, Dan, does it, that there's angels <laughs> on Mount Sinai. <laughs> but anyway, apparently in the New Testament, it was uh, it was taught that way. And then here, right here in Hebrews 2.2, if you just flip over and look at verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, talking about the law. So the law was considered to have been at least brought from God, you know, through angels. It was communicated through angels. So that's a big deal. Okay. Cause more, even more than the prophetic, messages the law was a huge deal and so he's pointing out to them right away that not only is Jesus better than the prophets in a more thorough and complete and final word but he's more thorough and complete than anything the angels could say and the angels come straight from the presence of god so we're not talking a message that has to go through someone's brain you know the the filter of a human brain <laughs> like the prophets they, the angels wouldn't mess it up. They would get the message exactly right. And what he's saying is the message brought from Christ is that much better. So that's kind of where this is coming from. So let's look at verse 5, and let's start through these seven Old Testament quotes, and these are his proof texts. He's, he's proving it through these, these quotes, and they're kind of split into pairs. So you've got like one and two, kind of go together, talking about Jesus being the Son. And then in verse 5, and then in verses 6 and 7, you've got the third and fourth quote talking about the angels and who they are. And then in verses 8 through 9, and also 10 through 12, you've got big, long passages about the eternality of Jesus and how he is um, permanent and forever, and the angels are not. So, there's five psalms, one prophet, and one from the law, although it's actually from a psalm, but it's quoting the law. So the first one is Psalm 2-7, and this was considered to be a messianic psalm. So a lot of the Jews already taught that this psalm was talking about the Messiah. So in verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? He's quoting directly from that psalm. And he ties it directly to the next verse. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Which is a quote from the covenant that God made with David, 2 Samuel 7.14. And the Davidic covenant is a big deal also, because this is where God promised David, he said, your descendant will reign on the throne Forever that your throne will be there forever. Now, you read the history, and it doesn't take long for the human descendants of David to stop being kings. (laughs) The throne definitely did not last forever in the Old Testament. So they taught, even in pre-Christ Jewish tradition, they taught that this was referring to the Messiah, that there would be a descendant of David who would come. And he would be the Messiah, and he would be God's chosen one, and he would rule and reign forever. And that this psalm that is already mentioned, Psalm 2-7, is also applying to him. That God is speaking, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So, the first two are, he's trying to point out that Jesus is better than the angels because, number one, he has a very unique relationship with God. They can stand in the glory of God in the presence of God all day long, and they will never be his son. They will never have that special, intimate relationship that Jesus has with God. So everything that they could do, he can do in that sense so much better, especially when it comes to um, speaking the words of God to us or um, making intercession, as we're going to see later, a lot about um, making intercession for us. You know, I don't know that angels plead before God, but if they could, Jesus could do it so much better. There's this intimate relationship there. He is the Son. He is the Messiah. He is God's chosen one above all else. And so that's kind of his first point here in verse 5. Then in verse 6, he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship Him, and this is a quote of Psalm ninety seven seven, which itself is quoting Deuteronomy thirty two forty three. So that's quoting the law. Another interesting thing, apparently, a little side note that the author of Hebrews does a lot is he quotes the Psalms a ton, even sometimes when the Psalms are actually quoting other things in the Old Testament. So it's kind of interesting how important the Psalms were, and so. Angels are commanded to worship Christ as he is enthroned. It says when he brings the firstborn into the world. There's some question as to exactly what he's saying, but most people think that it's, it's when, when God brings him into his enthronement, his, like here he is, he is the king, and you get to see it now, and it's revealed that the angels are commanded then to worship him which we know of course that they do. Read the book of Revelation. You know, there's amazing sweeping accounts of the angels worshiping Christ for what he did, what he accomplished and how awesome and mighty it was. Then he says in verse 7 of the angels he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is a quote from Psalm 104:4 and uh interestingly, and also, not that it's, it's kind of a scholarly geeky thing, but uh, the, <laughs> the author of Hebrews a lot of times quotes the Greek version of the Old Testament. And like they can say, he's almost quoting it word for word, more than the Hebrew version. So we don't really know what his background was or why, but anyway, this is definitely from the Greek version. And um, it kind of does some interesting things with the words, but basically, either way you... Read it, the point is probably the same, and that is that angels are created beings. They are servants. They're servants just like the winds and just like fire. And they are, even though they are immortal, they were created. They had a beginning. I mean, it's really easy when you think about it it's easy for us to think about living forever because we've never died, right? Has anyone died and come back? Okay, just checking. It's really easy to think about living forever, I think. Um, it's super hard, impossible for us to imagine having always been, because we all had a beginning. So there's no way you can imagine what it's like for God to have always been there. It just seems super weird. Very hard for us to wrap our heads around. Well, this is the point here: is that Even though the angels are immortal, and they don't grow old, and they don't die, and they're going to be there forever, they did have a beginning. Jesus did not. He is eternal. And that's what the, the next verses are contrasting between the angels being created beings and capable of being snuffed out, just like that, just like I said about the superheroes. God decided to boom, they're gone. They are not eternal, and they are not infinitely powerful. So the next one in verse 8 through 9 is, quote, of Psalm 47, 6 through 7. And it says, but of the sun, he says, so he's contrasting with the angels, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved Righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this is another interesting one. It's originally addressing a king in the line of David, and he gets his authority from God. And what's interesting is that they actually use the title, God, most likely, and some people have tried to get around this, but it just seems like clearly what he's saying: they use the title "God" when they're addressing the king, so like I said before, about, you know like when you think about the Marvel dC superheroes, you know a lot of times those terms "gods" are thrown around like crazy, you know, and so even in the Bible we find that where that title or term is used of a king, and most likely it is just referring to um the authority of that king, especially being in the line of David, is given to him by God. He is a representative of God. But, interestingly, the author of Hebrews is saying, let's take that and apply it to the Messiah. Okay? Who really is God. He's not just a human king who has authority given to him by God who is in this line and descendant from David, but he really is God. He really is the Son of God. And so that's how he is using it here. And again, he's tying it to the Messiah. Now notice what he says, a couple things about his reign. It is perfect and just. And of course, that was very much the theme of a lot of the passage of the Old Testament talking about the Messiah, was that his reign would be absolutely just and perfect. It, everything would be you know, equal and righteousness would, would be everywhere and just all of this stuff about how he would reign fairly and truly and justly and all of that. And so we see that applied here to Jesus. And then he says, Um, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And this this is just really fun, I think, to think about. Because if you'll recall, when we read through Hebrews, in Hebrews 12.2, and I'll just flip over there and read it real quick. In Hebrews 12.2, it's talking about Jesus' suffering and how we should follow him. And it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Very much relating to what we're reading right now. Obviously, he's already said that Jesus was sitting at the right hand of God, and he's about to say it again. And then he says it in 12.2. Notice, too, that Jesus was looking to the joy. He was looking forward to the joy that was set before him. And this is something we don't, we don't always focus on. We don't really think about too much. But just think about how God's joy is his forever. I mean, we can maybe get a slight little glimpse of it when we feel a deep satisfaction for something that we've accomplished or done or maybe a position we've arrived at in life, or, you know, whatever. A deep satisfaction and joy over a finished work or a place of approval. Um, and, and I mean it in a good way, you know, a genuine good feeling, not some sort of sinful thing. But if you can just imagine that amplified to infinity, that's how Christ feels all the time. I don't think you could probably wipe the smile off his face, you know? I mean I'm sure there are moments of grief and moments of whatever however he feels in in uh, eternity but he is human he is I mean he still has that that uh humanity with him I think but just imagine the joy that he feels having accomplished the great work of God the greatest work of God the entire history of man being wrapped up in this thing that he did, and that is what he feels, that accomplishment, that joy that is with him forever. And it's beyond anything that we will ever feel, even when we're in heaven, even when we are ruling and reigning with him and and all of the glorious promises that are ours, which are are beyond our comprehension, it still pales in comparison to what he feels to the joy that he shares between him and the Father. It is definitely greater than anything the angels could ever feel. And they have a lot of joy as well, being in the presence of God all the time and seeing his plan accomplished. And they they wonder at it. First Peter says they, they long to look into this amazing thing that God has done. So the angels can't even come close to touching what what Christ has in that sense. So then we go to uh, verses 10 through 12. And here he's quoting Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And he says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed." But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So this is also interpreted as a prophecy of Christ, where he is truly equated with God. And we read this before the, the um, before the service started. And it's that Christ himself, as we've already heard in chapter 1, was the agent, was with God, was part of this process creating the world. He made it from the beginning. He created the angels. And the author of Hebrews is using this to point out again that the angels are a created work and that Christ is eternal, that he has always been and will always be and cannot be destroyed. His power cannot be taken from him. The angels, it is possible. They could be. And so, like I said before, it's easy for us to imagine living forever, but not to have having no beginning, and the, the angels are also in that sense. And then in verse 13, he says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is a quote, it's the final quote, number 7, <laughs> of Psalm 110, verse 1. And it is, interestingly, the most quoted Old Testament text in the entire New Testament, quoted a ton, apparently like 25 times or something. Uh, Five of them are in Hebrews. (laughs) The author of Hebrews definitely liked this passage, and this one, it was, I think, very strongly considered among the Jews to be a messianic passage. And he refers to it also in, in in other verses as well. So, <clears throat> of course here's mentioned again the right hand of God and as I'm sure you probably know that's you know the place of approval that's the place of my number one guy you know <laughs> that's this is almost equal sit at my right hand you know it is very much a position of above all else above anyone else except for the person that he's sitting next to of course so clearly Christ has a superior position to all the angels. None of them were ever invited to sit down at the right hand of God, even in a metaphorical sense. So Jesus himself also did say that this passage was messianic. You don't have to look this up. I'm not going to read it. But in Mark 12, 35 to 37, Jesus references this and is saying that it refers to basically himself. So it's not just to David or to any of his descendants, but to the Messiah. So that brings us to verse 14, where he kind of concludes his point. So he's he's asking this rhetorical question. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels are merely created servants, as powerful and glorious as they are. And they serve us as well which is pretty interesting to think about. I mean, when you think about how we are going to rule and reign with Jesus, and it is pure speculation on my part, um if we are joint heirs with Christ, that that is a superior position to the what the angels have. We will be in the glory of God for all of eternity. We will be there ruling and reigning and even the angels do not get to enjoy that position. And I'm not saying we're going to be able to like command armies of them <laughs> anything like that, but there will definitely be something there. And and right here, even right now, obviously under the command of Christ, they serve us. They do things to help us, to benefit us for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And there's that word, inherit, again. we talked a lot about being an heir and joint heirs, and and Hebrews is going to talk a lot about that and how Jesus himself inherited and is an heir of all things. So it's just an interesting thought. Um, Another thing, just something that, in closing, another thought that that I had, I mean, thanks to my brother, actually, he pointed it out, but Jesus said to Peter... If you recall in the garden when Peter tried to fight back um, and Jesus said to him, "Do you not know that I could appeal to my father and he would send twelve legions of angels right now <laughs> I mean, imagine being having the power that Jesus had, and you know even humanly speaking, just the power he had at his command in this army of all-powerful superheroes, right, (laughs) could have called thousands of them, done whatever he wanted. It's almost a bit of temptation, I would think. And we've never even come close to being able to do that. (laughs) What would we do in that situation? We'd be like, kill them, kill them all. (laughs) Something we would do that would not be anywhere near what Christ did, and he resisted that and chose not to go that path, even though it was his, it was his to take. He could have easily done that. Instead, he obeyed God's plan. He stuck with what they knew that they wanted to do and suffered the worst possible imaginable, something we will never even come close to understanding, pain, rejection, horror, all of that. He didn't have to. He didn't have to do any of it. And yet he chose to. And he earned this title. This title of son. He earned his place. even though <laughs> It was already his. It was already his. And he didn't have to earn anything. He was perfect. And yet he chose to actually walk through that for us. So Jesus is better because of who he is. He's the Son, he's the Messiah, he enjoys a special place, but he's also better because of what he does. And I I just started trying to think about all the things that angels do, you know, in the Old Testament and in the New, what we see. And Jesus is infinitely better in all of them. He's the better messenger, brings God's word more perfectly, more fully. He's the better mediator of a new law, right? He laid down the new law, the new covenant. He brought it all. He is a better protector, better savior. You know, in the Old Testament, they, angels were, would save people from stuff and, and help them and protect them and guard them. And Jesus is better at all of that, infinitely so. He's a better agent of judgment, and this is a little bit scary, but read the account in Revelation. <laughs> When he comes back, you know, if that doesn't make you shiver a little in your boots, something's wrong. You're not getting it. And angels often brought judgment. They were the agents of God's judgment. They were the leaders of God's army in that sense as well. And that account in Revelation of Christ coming back on the horse, you know, I mean, it's just intense. And he will bring ultimate and final and complete judgment. Righteous judgment. He will settle all accounts. It will be done. He's a better comforter and strengthener. I was also even reading about how the angels strengthened Jesus. You know, when he was fasting in the wilderness after the temptation with Satan and then also in the garden, it says that an angel strengthened him, you know. And yet he is, his spirit is infinitely better at that for us can strengthen us and comfort us when we need it in any given moment, when we're facing stuff that is ridiculous in comparison (laughs) to what he had just gone through in those moments. You know, I've never fasted for 40 days. I know some who have, you know, and I've definitely never gone through what he went through in the garden and none of us ever will. And he can comfort us and he can strengthen us. So a final thought as we are going through Hebrews, and we're going to get into more and more of this kind of stuff, and it's it's deep. It's deep water, you know? And I was I was thinking about um, if you've ever gone snorkeling and, and you've swam in the shallow water and you've seen all the pretty fish. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. But have you ever gone snorkeling where you couldn't see the bottom? Have you ever gone in the water where nothing you could see was blue. Blue as far as you could see. Let me just say it's a scary experience. (laughs) It's it's a little bit nerve-rattling, especially when you don't expect it, and you jump in the water, and it's like blue. It's very intense. And it may not seem as, you know, oh, look at all the little pretty fish, (laughs) but it is a special experience all on its own. And I want to encourage us, you know, in uh, right here in Hebrews, in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, and we read this when we read through the whole thing, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And I don't want that to be me. And I just encourage us to think about that. Don't become dull of hearing. <laughs> Go in the deep water and stay there and enjoy it for what it is. So let's pray. Father, again, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for the, the, the deep parts of the gospel that are harder to understand. They're not so simple, and the gospel can be so wide and beautiful and lots of little details that we can grasp, and yet there are parts where you can't see the bottom. It's so deep. So, Lord, help us. Help us to, to go there after you, even though it's difficult. Lord, thank you so much for all that has been accomplished through Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your angels. Thank you for all that you do. And thank you for creating us and for this beautiful, glorious plan that you have worked out. And may we love you and praise you and enjoy you for all of eternity because of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.